the vortices that emerge out of the jet stream are what are powering the jet stream. Okay, think of that. If you look into the history of meteorology, of of thought about what storms are, what's the cause and effect of storms, put it in the context of physics, the history of that pursuit, if you were to look into it, you would find it's a, that there's a very robust history of conversation. And it was out of that robust history of conversation that meteorology became an entity that we recognize. But it's important to understand something, that history indicates blatant superstition that everyone would recognize as superstition. You know, things like God's throwing thunderbolts. And it is in the context of that that you have to understand that 1840 is when we got the current understanding that dominates all of the thinking within the field of meteorology as to the physics of storms. And this model that kind of emerged out of this basically involved relatively simple notions of uplift in the atmosphere caused by buoyancy. Now, why buoyancy? Well, because they were living in a world in which the notion of weight and of up and down, you know, Newton's apple, all that stuff. And not only that, but they were living in a world of of steam engines, you know, and then you get all this this steam power and the steam power, and this showed that this water had these incredible properties. And out of that, they came up with what I think can best be described as a kind of pseudo superstition, pretend science. And here's the thing, it is still with us. It is still dominating the field of meteorology and it's infected the field to such a degree that there's zero progress and everybody is pretending and afraid to actually admit that they know it's nonsense. And they all know it's nonsense, but no one wants to uh, be the one to pull the plug on that. And that's because there's funding associated with the decision. If you just reveal to the public that you've been doing superstition all this time in terms of the actual physics of storms, you know, that specific subject, if you kind of admit, because they would have to, they would essentially have to admit that what they've been doing up to now is based on on these superstitious notions of convection. That's one of them. Another one that kind of came along later is dry layer capping. And then there's a third one that has to do with latent heat of condensation. And then there's the fact that many meteorologists don't necessarily believe any one or any of those things and feel that they don't need to provide any information at all on their theory since it's all been worked out by other scientists and you just need to look at the literature and you can figure it out. There's many who believe just that. In other words, I don't have an understanding myself, but if you want to figure it out, go ahead. There's some books there. You can go look at that. And of course, these people are not real scientists. These people are using the techniques of marketing, of supporting a, a group-based belief, and they're using that to create the illusion that they're doing science and that they're making progress too. And they have no qualms about doing that because that's what they've been doing all along. It's actually normal to pretend to understand what really they don't really understand at all. Now, that of course is a provocative statement or certainly would be perceived as such. And how you react to that will probably determine its validity, right? If your reaction to that is, 
Well, you're a terrible person for even stating such, and I'm going to call you names, which happens all the time, by the way. It's not that it's even that unusual. I'm going to call you names, and I'm going to dismiss you, and I'm going to talk about my degree, and therefore we don't have to listen to you, and I'm going to tell everyone that. Okay, nothing I can do about that. But uh, if you really want to understand the physics of storms, you've got to realize, first of all, that there's people in this world who have a built-in financial, social incentive to pretend they understand what they don't and to lead you into believing that you're wasting your time to even question it. I hope you don't listen to those people. I hope you can, or at least some of you anyways, not everybody, can uh, learn to question it because the things we're working out are going to be pretty incredible. Things like mitigating tornadoes. But you know, along those lines, and since I am a person who likes to make provocative statements, I'm going to make a statement that's probably going to piss off people who are in wind energy um, area. And that is that we may be doing something a little bit risky when we extract energy out of the atmosphere without really understanding that it may have a greater effect on the weather than we're suspecting. So that was a very political way for me to state that. Keep in mind, as, you, as you're considering what I'm saying here, I have a superior understanding of the actual mechanics of the atmosphere. And it all 100% of that, my superiority part of that, um, stems from the fact that I figured out water. Um, until you figure out water, you will have a very difficult time putting the pieces together to understand how the structures associated with water, such as vortices and boundary layers in the atmosphere, and moist-dry boundary layers, by the way, until you understand that, um, you just simply don't have any chance to understanding the true physics of the atmosphere, which involve structure as being something that facilitates flow, okay? And the structure comes from water, and the flow plays a role in making water change its properties, thereby allowing the existence of these tubes. And here's a really interesting point about this. Think about this, okay? Currently, meteorology cannot describe the cause of the jet stream. Think about that, the jet stream. We hear talk about it all the time. From outer space, it's really obvious. But in 1942, when we were involved in a bombing campaign over Japan, it was discovered that there was this band of air up there that was going 200 miles an hour west to east across the Pacific. And we found out later it's all the way around the world. Now think about that, this big band of air moving along in what appears to be a, a relatively directional manner. Now, there's no there's no walls of any kind, right? So what could be causing that? Now, if meteorology was really a science, that would have become the most important question to answer. There were some who did want to examine that. And what happened is, though, the people who were trying to understand the real physics of storms weren't making any progress. Now we know why they didn't understand water well enough. Until they understand water, then they could have understood that it is possible for structural properties to appear in the atmosphere and to thereby create kind of a plumbing of the atmosphere. And, and this is kind of comes around circle again here, by understanding how they originate that plumbing and how it maintains its formation throughout its whole life cycle, can we now understand the vortices that emerge out of the jet stream? are what are powering the jet stream. Okay, think of that. The vortices that emerge out of the jet stream are what is powering the jet stream. If they did not, the jet stream would not exist. 
it would slow down and dissipate, you know. But it's only because these things are constantly coming up and shooting into it, almost like exhaust. Almost like exhaust, exhaust from a jet. And that's what a vortice kind of is. It's kind of like a jet. It's a jet that uses distance and the structural property that spin up on wind shear boundaries to create this ability to take the relatively high pressure at places of higher pressure and lower altitude and shoot it into the jet stream, which is lower pressure, higher altitude, and moving very fast, right? And it is because these things originate from the jet stream, grow down, cross boundary layers, and kind of puncture into the relatively high pressure at lower altitudes and serve as a pressure relief valve that we have any way of understanding why the jet stream is able to maintain its momentum. Because frankly, it doesn't make sense that it does or at least not until we understand the fact that vortices are both the result of the jet stream, because that's where you have the wind shear, the, the energy of the flow, and the thing that keeps the jet stream moving. Only if you had something that had these structural properties that could be this plumbing, these pipes, is it possible for this whole process to fit together? Now, are meteorologists going to mention to you that their theory doesn't explain any of this? <laughs> it doesn't. It really doesn't either. They've, they've managed to ignore the existence of the jet stream. But of course, they've been ignoring things all along anyways, right? They've ignored the fact that they don't really understand the focus flow of a tornado. Every once in a while, you, you know, you'll get them to admit that they don't understand it. But they've mostly ignored that it matters because they think of them as ju just, just a nuisance, which is terrible because it's the complete wrong idea. It's a complete wrong idea. The The stuff that allows storms to exist is this plasma that spins up on wind shear boundaries. And when it spins up at low altitudes, that's when there's problems. But you, we need it at high altitudes because that's how our planet transfers energy and moisture through what is referred to as uh, Hadley cells and Hadley cell circulation. Now, let me be clear here, I don't want to get into this right now, but Hadley cells do exist and they undoubtedly are a significant factor in the troposphere and they need to be understood. But currently they're misunderstood because of the superstition that meteorology is involved with where everything is convection. Actually, the Hadley cells are caused by the actual circulation that I'm talking about here and that is the vortices. Because believe it or not, the jet stream is really the net effect of a number of tributaries that are coming to it from all over the planet. The weather is much more involved, right? Much more um, related to one another, to it, part of a larger process. And the means by which that is achieved is along that boundary. That boundary is a sense, it, it, let me just kind of put it this way. That boundary up there, what we call the tropopause, between the troposphere and the higher stratosphere can be thought of, now this will sound a little bit silly, but I think it's something good for you to keep in mind, as like the, the, the closet that contains the plumbing in your house, you know, where the water heater is or something like that, you know? And I say it's the closet because the plumbing of the atmosphere occurs within that tropopause. That's where it actually happens. And that, that plumbing and the fact that it grows out to different locations and what does it cause when it when it hits a location? It causes a storm. That's what causes storms. Low pressure energy that feeds back. When I say back, I mean against the flow because it uses wind shear as the avenue of energy flow by way of vortices themselves. In other words, you create a vortice, 
Now you have a means of moving energy. It's in the form of low pressure, but it's energy coming out of the flow of the jet stream to a location reaching over to my left here because I'm saying it kind of goes upstream. It goes back to the west to arrive at a place where it causes a storm. So for example, when you see a tornado in Oklahoma, we're just seeing the very tail end of a much larger dog. And that dog might be 20, 100, whoever knows how many miles away, and it'll be into the jet stream or maybe a significant tributary to the jet stream. Well, that's the way the atmosphere actually works. It works based on flow. It doesn't work based on upward buoyancy, whatever that supposedly means. This is what's really happening in the atmosphere. Now, it's too bad that this whole subject is so completely tied to nonsensical politics by way of people who are just trying to keep the flow of money coming in their direction. They know that if they're honest, it'll be harder for that to happen. And so it just naturally, they keep their thinking vague to keep the subterfuge going to keep the public fooled. Now, I'm not saying they're deliberately thinking that way, but nevertheless, that's the effect they have by way of the fact that they won't address anything that I'm saying here. They won't, trust me. Science is about facts, not hearsay. If you have an argument, then you should present your argument. You should do it honestly and not, you know, just tell us what you think is true. And then tell us why you think it's true. Don't uh, tell us who told you. Don't tell us how many people believe what you believe. But if you have some reproducible experimental evidence, something that's verifiable that you want to introduce that suggests that you understand a certain truth, then I think you should present that and you should do whatever you need to do to get to the truth of it. Now, the problem is though, do you really want to know the truth or you just want to tell us what you believe? You believe a, th a certain thing and you want us to know that you've heard it from good sources that what you believe is true. Well, that may be the case. Your sources may be good, but the problem is, is what if your sources just believed it and didn't really understand it? What if that was the case? How would we know? You're saying that we should just accept it because you, you're giving us your word and you trust them and you, you've heard their arguments and they make sense to you. Okay, well, what are, what are those arguments? Go ahead, present them. Do they involve anything reproducible? If not, then well, who cares? So if you actually believe you understand something, then explain how you understand it. Or, here's a, here's a better idea, admit that you don't really understand it and that you're just going by what other people told you. It doesn't mean you're wrong, right? But just admit it, because that's actually what the case is. That's actually what's really happening, is you've been told this is true and then you're just repeating it. There's nothing wrong with that. More, moreover, if you want to, you can drop a few names as to who you're repeating. You can say, oh, it's based on this famous scientist and he did such and such research, and then we can actually look it up. That actually is a productive conversation in some fields, right? Like if you're in um, figuring out electricity or you're trying to figure out other parts of physics or um, that those are very interesting and productive conversations. But then you come to something like water, meteorology and then climatology. And it becomes political real fast. It never is not political is what happens in those areas of our reality. It's never not political. So what I've done is I've taken the politics out and I've applied the right uh, physics, got to the right answers. Now all the obstacles from this point on are all political. There's nothing really difficult scientifically to understand about anything I'm saying. It's all straightforward stuff. And that's where that is. That's where that is. But uh, frankly, we'll never know on a lot of this stuff. We just won't. We'll just never know because people believe things. They don't know why they believe them and they don't really care to spend much time at all 
reconsidering anything. No one does. No one reconsiders things. And uh, so all you can really do is educate the new generation, put a firm distinction between the old generation and, and the new thinking that you're introducing. Make sure that there's no doubt that you think they're worthy of ridicule and let the new generation know that so that they'll have the proper emotion on how to deal with the complete nonsense political nonsense that comes from our current understanding of how the atmosphere works.